So Galatians chapter 6 this morning, I want to begin reading our section of scripture. It is a very important one that I hope will be a benefit to all of us in terms of how we think and how we perceive our Christian life and experience. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The sowing and reaping principle is what we're going to be studying practically for our Christian life I believe that the main point of the text is found in the little phrase in verse 7 that I titled the message for, God is not mocked. God will not be mocked. Our culture mocks God, whether it knows it is doing that or not. Sin mocks God. Anytime people are sinning and Our culture sins ongoingly is mocking God. Ignoring God or ignorance of God is mocking God. And in reality, people who are outside the church are at enmity with God, which is a derivative of being an enemy of God. Even a God that they don't even know that they are enemies with. Hebrews 4.13 All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In my experience, most people would say they believe in God when I ask them or if you were to ask them. The media will say, no, most people are atheistic and are unbelievers. They don't believe that there is a God at all or they're agnostic or they're naturalists, those who believe in nature. But most people intuitively believe there is a God. People made in the image of God know that. They feel that. People will say, I believe in a higher power. Most people won't openly deny the existence of God. But without the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, people do not have a chance at really understanding who God really is at all or understanding with belief What the Bible says God is, how the Bible describes him in his resplendent, ineffable glory, they don't know who they're offending. Romans 2.5 says that God is storing up wrath for people for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, revealed against those who are impenitent, those who are acting out of Utter ignorance with whom they have to do. Well, whether people openly reject the existence of God or are sinning in willful flamboyance or people who are fabricating a lesser God 
for whom they don't need to be accountable to, who, who, they, who, can they, who will accommodate their sin, whether people are shrugging their shoulders saying, I'm not sure there's a God really or not. All of these are forms of mockery. God will not be mocked. Ultimately, he will not stand for this. Romans 1 says everyone's accountable because of the creation. God's revealed himself. The culture is spiraling. They don't want to deal with God. And Romans 1.32 gives the ultimate example of mockery where people are sinning and practicing sins and they deserve to die. And they not only do them, but verse 32, they give approval to those who practice them. People are cheering each other on in the mockery and mocking of God. Biblical history, documents that people have mocked God, they will not get away with it. Goliath shook his fist in the face of God's kingdom. When the Philistines fought the Jews in the Valley of Elah, 1 Samuel 17, and God was not mocked, he ended up with a stone in his forehead and a sword in his neck. King Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, was sitting on his throne as Rome's puppet ruler over Palestine. He was mocking God's glory. The people proclaimed he was God. Acts 21, 21 to 31. He was sitting in a shimmering silver robe, basking in his own glory, wanting to be worshipped, refusing to give glory to God, and ultimately worms ate him. God will not be mocked. There's a reckoning that's coming. What's worse, though, is that God is also mocked within the church. The world mocks God, but the church, through passive ignorance, mocks God as well. It's something that we need to deal with, whether in passive ambivalence, where we act like we don't care, or active defiance. People within the church are hypocritically mocking God and ignoring God, and this is the same sin. This is the sin that... Paul is addressing to the church. He's not addressing the world here. He's addressing the church, saying that if you're sowing to the flesh, you're mocking God. You're mocking this God. It's an epidemic sin outside, but also inside the church. And it takes understanding the principle of sowing and reaping to fully grasp how to deal with mocking God. Well, verse 6 is what sets the stage for the principle. Verse 6 is the prompt. It's the prompt for the principle. It's the, it's the application. It's, it's the need that needs to be met. And this verse is awkward for the preacher to preach because this verse is all about paying teachers within the church. It is. It's just an awkward thing. And I was going to just lightly brush over it. And then there was all kinds of stuff that flooded onto my notes. And so... Here we go. Verse 6. Let the one, that's you, let the one or ones who are taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I'm not the only teacher. I'm not the only one that needs to be shared with. But the accountability of this verse is on the ones who are taught. They are to koinonia, which is the word share. They are to enter into fellowship By providing for people to teach the word of God. Now verse 5, if you look back at that, is the picture and the scene of standing before the Lord in 
final judgment, as we talked about before. It's the idea that everybody has to bear his own backpack load that the, that the God of the universe gives you individually, and you have to answer for your own life and your own stewardship of what God gave you to do on this earth, whether good or bad that you did, you have to answer for that. You'll have to bear your own load. Verse 6 moves from that individualism to, again, community sharing within the body of Christ. There is a self-deception that Paul is calling out of radical individualism where people just become consumers within the church, worried about them, their own selves and their own lives, and they don't take their head up and look at the needs within the body of Christ. And this is a prompt to remember to share in the preacher's burden with the word or the word ministry that is going on within the church. There is word ministry in community groups. There is word ministry in equipping hour. There is word ministry even through the school that we support as a ministry. There's word ministries going on through Anchorage Grace Church, through all local churches. There's Sunday morning services. There's a Sunday evening service that we do monthly. All of these are word ministries that I would submit are worth rallying behind. If there's one thing that pastors should be doing, it's they should be studying the word of God in depth so that they can help people in their lives with the word of God. Because the word of God is what brings life change. It's what brings you to God. It's what brings you face to face with whom you have to do. It, the word ministry is what curbs and curtails mockery that happens in your own heart. The word ministry hopefully will clarify sowing seeds in the spirit rather than sowing seeds in the flesh. The word ministry is the, the foundation point and the cornerstone of all other ministries, all other programs. Everything should flow out of word ministry. It's been said if you take care of the depth of the ministry, then God will take care of the breadth of the ministry. So the one who has taught the word is someone who's been, the Greek word is where we get the word catechize, and don't, I'm not talking formal catechism here, but it's the idea of being taught the body of doctrine. The word word in verse 6, taught the word log on, could be reference, a reference for the gospel, but I would take this as the whole gospel of Scripture. All of the good news of all of Scripture. Remember Paul told the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he said, I did not shrink from teaching you the whole counsel of God. I declared to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. This is a wise investment to invest in the ministry of the word. Hebrews 13, 7 is a good parallel verse. Remember your leaders. All right, now how is leadership defined here? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. That's how leadership is defined. Those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A key piece of leadership is teaching the Bible to people. And the specific need Paul is addressing is a financial one. He could be speaking to the need that was in Jerusalem at the time in the history of biblical history. Remember, he was referencing in Galatians 2 his experience back at the Jerusalem council. And that early church came under persecution because Christians 
were coming out of Judaism that had been denying Christ, and so they were under persecution. So the Gentile churches were being asked to send supplies down. So Paul could be saying, don't forget about your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's the idea of fellowshipping and sharing in those who have taught you. Paul describes a relationship that's between the Bible teacher and the one that's being taught. There is a mutuality there. This is not consumerism where you take it or leave it or you grade the pulpit. It's what you enter into by supporting with your heart and with your resources. The student isn't a passive pawn and the teacher is not an imperious dictator. This can sound very self-serving, and I don't mean for it to be. I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. And if I don't say it when the Bible says it in the exposition, then it doesn't get said. So I'm saying it. That's just where it is. Um, this is. This is less about salary. This is more about fellowship. It's participation. It's that you don't just come and take, but you come and receive and you give. Luke to Theophilus at the opening of his gospel in Luke 1, 1 through 4, he speaks of this ministry where he says, I wrote to you, Theophilus, this orderly account so that you, Theophilus, would have certainty concerning the things that he'd been taught. So it's sharing, and it's broader than simple money. Remember the Christian experience in Acts 2? They held all things in common. Um, Commonality is Christianity. You have a common faith. You have common sufferings. You have shared material blessings. Warren Wiersbe said, Teachers share spiritual treasures, and those taught share back material treasures. Cross-reference Romans 15, 27 Paul was a tent maker. He was bivocational. He did support himself in the pioneering work of uh, gospel ministry, but he also established a ministry position, that of a proclaiming pastor. 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should gain or get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, what kind of laborers are these? I mean, ministry is, I enjoy it. I enjoy being able to communicate the word of God. But ministry is labor. It is work. If you study the word of God uh, deeply and take time in the word and you read what other people have said about the word and you look at the original language and you let it saturate over your mind all week and you really build to a Sunday morning, it is laboring work. And first Timothy 5.18 says you shouldn't muzzle an ox while it treads out of the grain. That's not a glamorous uh, picture of what the laborer looks like. You're you're an ox. You're, You're under a yoke. You're under a burden. And you are to eat while you do this. The laborer deserves his wages. And that's a reference to the day laborer that Jesus mentioned in the Gospels. The 70 were sent out and he said the laborer is worthy of his wages. But the preacher is also likened to a plodding farmer. The church is to see this as a sowing and reaping ministry. This is the prompt to the principle. It's to prompt our thinking. We invest, we sow, and if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. You're sowing into word ministry. Luther said it's impossible for one man to be devoted to household duties day and night and his support. 
for his support and at the same time pay attention to the study of sacred scripture as the teaching ministry requires. It's the idea of being freed to throw yourself into the ministry. And look at verse 10. Just skip down because he picks right up on this at the end. He says, so then as we have opportunities, let us do good. The good is sharing. Do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. It's the idea of looking out for each other within the church, sowing and reaping. But as I said, paying the pastor is not the main point of this text. It isn't. It's just a prompt. It's just it's, it's a practical application to set up the real issue at hand, and that is beginning in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not Mocked. God is not mocked. That's the point. He will not be mocked. He will not be treated with contempt. He will not be, the original language literally says, you cannot turn your nose up at God. God will not be disrespected. He will not be taken lightly. You can't scorn or sneer at God. And he'll punish those who spite him. Second Peter is a key New Testament passage regarding how people mock the Lord. Verse 3 and 4, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days, will scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? There's an immutable law. God will not be mocked. Man might fool himself, but you cannot fool God. The word deceived here in verse 7, do not be deceived, is where we get the word planet. It's uh, the Greek word planeto. It's the idea of you can't be a wandering planet. You can't be out to lunch on this issue. You have to dial in and commit in your heart that what is sown will be reaped. You can't sow mockery and not reap consequences. How is this corrected? In the believer's life, well, it's understanding the sowing and reaping principle and understanding the, the outcomes. For the one, look at, look at verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. These outcomes could not be more diametrically opposed to each other. These are future outcomes. These are eschatological outcomes. These are how things are going to end up. There's implication to your life now. If you're sowing in the field of your flesh now, you're reaping corruption now. And there's the idea of sowing in the spirit in your life now. And you're reaping the eternal life that you live as a Christian now. But these are ultimate outcomes. If you're a sower to your flesh in this life, then your outcome is not eternal life. It's showing that you are not a Christian. If you're sowing to the Spirit, it is vindicating or it is, it is an evidence that you are a believer and you're sowing seed to reap eternal life. Well, before diving too deeply into the principle, I do want to point out the abuses of this principle because we are talking about Galatians, which is the ultimate book to do away with and undo legalism. And people will abuse scripture to impose a legalism, a false holiness onto people's lives by saying, up, if you sow that, you're going to get a consequence and they'll hold it as leverage over your head if you let them. If you don't understand the sowing and reaping principle, especially the abuses 
that are there. Remember the book of Job and Job's counselors. Job was indicted because he was said to have been the cause, the direct cause of the calamities and suffering that he went through. He lost his property. He lost his children. He lost, at a point, his marriage. He lost his health. And certainly all of these losses were because of his unconfessed sins, right? No, the book of Job is undoing that. Job nearly lost his sanity because the deepest cause of Job's pain was the disloyalty of his own friends who were leveraging and misapplying the sowing and reaping principle on Job. Eliphaz, he wrongly uses this argument in Job 4.8 and uses the same language. He says, as I have seen, Job, those who plow iniquity... And so trouble reap the same. So this is Job's pain. And the book of Job is to prove that Eliphaz is completely wrong. Well, people in the New Testament missed it as well. Jesus' disciples did. They made this same mistake, and we're not immune to it either. John 9, 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man. This is Jesus passing by a blind man, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was, and Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works that the works of God might be displayed in him. Oftentimes... It is the case we do not know really what God is up to in the big picture of things behind the scenes. That's how it was with Job. That's how it is with the blind man. Luke 9, 54 and 55, when his disciples James and John, the sons of thunder, saw this mockery. It was in Samaria. And it was the idea that Jesus was being mocked by Samaritans because he was passing through Samaria with his face set like flint to go to the cross in Jerusalem. He was going through Samaria. James and John got mad and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We're going to apply the reaping principle right now. Let's nuke them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, that wasn't the Lord's plan. The Lord turned and rebuked James and John for that. The longer in your faith... The longer we're in the faith, we realize God is not a genie in the bottle. He's not someone that we are controlling. He's not magic ball where we're shaking, for, shaking the ball for answers. God is up to what he's up to. And oftentimes his timetable is different than ours. And there aren't immediate consequences for sin. Why are there not immediate consequences for sins? Well, God magnifies two attributes that come to mind. One is his grace, right? He doesn't immediately exact a penalty on sins for people in this life, unsaved and saved people, to show his grace and patience. And then also, God at times will allow sin to run its course and allow people to harden up in their sins and harden up even to the point of no return to magnify his justice. So grace and justice. Second Peter 3.8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that... With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. This is God's display of grace, and also ultimately is justice if people do not repent. The theme of retribution, though, is all through Scripture. Sowing and reaping is all through Scripture. Adam and Eve... They listened to the devil. You shall surely not die. 
They committed sin and sealed their fate that they would ultimately physically die, even though they did not immediately die. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sins will find you out. The sons of Korah, they openly rebelled and they complained and they were swallowed by the earth. David sins with Bathsheba. He kills her husband. He's confronted by Samuel, thou art the man. Psalm 90, verse 8, I read this. You set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Things come out. The Proverbs is all about sowing and reaping, consequences. Pharisees come to the point of no return by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're going against Christ, against Christ, against Christ, and they attribute his miraculous works to Satan. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. You've gone too far. Demas, he abandoned Paul, 2 Timothy. He left Paul for the love of this present world. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some are sick and dying because of their sin. Hebrews 6, 4, it's impossible to renew people to repentance that have been enlightened, that have come so close to the light, to the gospel light, to the power of God, tasting God's heavenly gift, that they're at the point of no return. Revelation twenty ten. the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20 verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. There are consequences. So let's look at the illustration now in verse 8 of what practically this looks like for the Christian's life. It's an agricultural law. It's a rudimentary law. It's as basic and self-evident as the law of gravity. When you sow seed, you will reap a harvest. It's the seed time and harvest principle. The law applies to every farmer, every time and place, both young and old, experienced and inexperienced, wise and foolish, saved and unsaved. The law is impartial, predictable, and immutable. It's like any law of nature with no exception. It's also called the law of great returns. It's the idea that if you sow seeds to grow tomatoes, you need to sow tomato seeds. You're not going to get corn if you sow tomato seeds. I don't know why you would sow tomato seeds. Tomatoes are gross, but unless they're mixed in sauce and put sugar and all that, and then it tastes okay. But also, seed lies in the ground for a long time with no apparent end, but eventually the seeds come up. So sowing, it determines everything. And the sower that's best fit, For this work is someone who is patient. If you've ever met farmers, you realize the best are the ones that are very patient, very steady, and they just faithfully do their work, and then things ultimately happen. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The context there as well in 2 Corinthians 9 is about paying teachers within... The church. So it's just interesting that the sowing and reaping principle is connected in that way there as well. The principle is built into our world, though. It's an agro image and it's a picture of final judgment. And it's broadened as a broader principle dealing with the moral background of the flesh and the spirit, which are combatants. First, I mean, Galatians 5 17. It's the desires of the flesh warring against the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the As one person put it, John Stout, I think, he called the believer's heart a country estate. I love that. A country estate with two fields. 
you have, and this is the key to understanding this text, you have two fields in your life. And you are always constantly choosing to sow seed in one of them or another. You're either sowing seeds in your flesh or you're sowing seeds in your spirit. If you put the money idea on this, where you invest your money, you're either investing your money in your flesh or your money in your spirit and God's spiritual work in your life. Where your treasure is, your heart lies also. Are you putting your heart treasure into your flesh or into the Holy Spirit's work into your life? Look at the fruit of the flesh, verses 19 to 21. Are you investing in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and the like? Or are you investing in love in your life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Two fields, that's what you have. You have two places to put your investment, two places to put your time, to put your talents, and to put your monies. Sowing in the flesh. What does that mean? It's sowing into what's still fallen in your life. Romans seven eighteen, the principle of remaining sin. It's the blatant immoralities of your life or the cold indifference of your life. It's sowing in the flesh. It's also maybe sowing in terms of Galatians, in terms of legalism. It's trying to feed legalism in your life, whatever that looks like. How do I protect myself or, or build safe havens or barriers around myself with my money? Holiness is not built on people who have a victim mentality. You, you're not a victim, you're a sower. You're not a victim to your nature, temperament, or environment. You're a sower. John Stott Listen to this quote. It's a power quote. It's worth it. We cuddle and stroke it instead of crucifying it. This is the lower nature of the the flesh. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, wallow in self-pity, we're sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Christians wonder why they do not reap holiness and whether we reap holiness or not depends almost entirely on what, we, what and where we sow. It's not confusing. Why are you not happy or joyful in your Christian life? Well, what and where are you sowing your seed? If you don't sow in the Holy Spirit, you're not going to see the fruit or reap the harvest of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, you're here this morning. Hopefully, there's some seed that's being sown in your hearts this morning. But the church will grow. Your life will grow if you sow. The old adage, sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. It's true. It's true. But if you sow in your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Things are going to go from better to bad to worse in your life, progressively worse, if you sow to your flesh. The moral fabric of your universe will come apart. It's a sobering picture of the law of consequences. It's when people are so hardened, even those who are professing believers in the church, when they sow to their flesh, 
By rejecting the gospel, they live completely in their flesh. They live a double life. They live for something other than Christ as Savior. They're reaping eternal destruction rather than eternal life. This is the ultimate corruption, eternal death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. What you pay, what you earn from your sin is death. The effects of seed sown in the flesh are sobering. They are seeds that are sown in delay, right? Oftentimes, we expect that if we do something wrong, we're going to see the consequence of that wrong right away. But that's not the picture of sowing seed and reaping a harvest. Often, it's the seeds that are sown and sown and sown and thrown that ultimately will yield a corrosion, a corruption, a a disaster in your life that you had forgotten about. Eventually, your sin finds you out. This is a quote from John MacArthur. It's really good. It says, To a great extent, a person's character is the product of seeds planted in his early life. A child brought up to have his own way will grow into an adult who wants his own way. We should be struck by the permanence of early life. How identities are established in youth and early manhood. Every habit, good and bad, of those early years permanently affects someone's whole life. The battle is largely won or lost before it seems to begin. Again, if you put this in terms of money, it gets so super practical, right? Where do you invest your money? And I'm not saying, well... Put it all in the church, but you want to put it in the the field of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Whatever practically that looks like to your life circumstance. Investing in a Bible study, investing in, you know, gas to get to a Bible study, investing in relationship time, investing in helps, Bible study helps, materials. Investing your time in certain ways. Investing your energies in certain ways. It will benefit you. It's just like the physical life. If you don't Think in terms of your physical investment, in terms of what you eat or whether you exercise. Eventually, those things catch up with you, and it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. This one person said, just as it would be unwise to test the law of gravity by driving a car off the top of a parking garage, so too it would be unwise to test the law of the harvest by living a life centered upon ourselves. Consequences are just as ugly. When someone falls into a public scandal, and we know of them, I don't need to list the names of preachers who've fallen or people that fall or things that come out. When someone falls, typically it was not a far fall. They've been investing in sowing seeds in their flesh a long time privately and ultimately it comes out. It's the idea of someone who's going down a ladder to where they're at the bottom of the ladder and really when they're exposed, it's just they're stepping off the bottom rung. So how do you sow in the Spirit? We have to learn how to sow in the Spirit if we need a different field to sow in. Sowing in the Spirit is simply being preoccupied with God. It's a life that's preoccupied with God. It's where you hear people say, that person is on fire for God. That person is well taught and knows the Word of God. That is a person 
whose mind is fixed on Christ. That's a person who knows Scripture, who's allowed the Scripture to be taught in and not just in the head but to the heart, where a person really knows Christ through the Word. Colossians 2, 6, sorry. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Be filled by the Spirit, Ephesians five eighteen, Romans 12, 1. It's not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. So sowing into the Spirit is Colossians 3, letting God's Word richly dwell within you. It's being enraptured with Christ. It's Romans 8, 6, setting your mind on the Spirit, which is life and peace. It's the, thought, the thinking of Philippians 4, 8 that Pastor Steve Hatter recently preached on whatever's true, right, pure, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise. Think on these things. It comes from reading scripture. It comes from whose company you spend time with. That's a major point to take home. I've always said this, whether in youth group settings or adult settings, you become like the people that you hang around. It is very true. You pick up on their strengths, their weaknesses, you, you do, and you... You will enjoy what they enjoy and love what they love and hate what they hate because narratives influence and indoctrinate the way you think and feel about life and people will narrate to you and you to them and you become like the person that you're around, whom the person whom you're investing in or being invested into by. So sowing in the Holy Spirit is making a choice to put yourself around spiritually minded people. It's the idea of having private prayer and public prayer, disciplined habits in the Word of God, creating routines, signing up for ways to be disciplined spiritually. So if you sow in the Spirit, your reward is everlasting life. And this is what we enjoy now in communion with God. And I like how Spurgeon put it. He said, this is a life that flows like an ever-deepening ever-widening river until it bears us to the ocean of infinite felicity where the life of God is ours forever and ever. Eternal life isn't just eternal existence. Paul is talking about an eternal life that is qualitatively different than being spiritually dead. This is eternal life that you may know him, right? It's knowing God. It's living in fellowship with God that starts now and goes into eternity. That's eternal life. It's only in the spirit. It, it is what breeds eternal life. Timothy George, uh, dean of Beeson Theological Seminary, he said eternal life is not merely life that is eternal. That lasts eternally is rather God's own life, a life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit graciously bestowed on uh, the children of God through faith in the Redeemer. Eternal life is a present possession of all who truly trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, let me say this quickly. You can be someone who is a believer who is not always spirit-filled and still going to heaven. And that is because... A believer is a citizen of heaven. You can't change your status once you are a Christian. There's no contradiction here of the law of sowing and reaping. The ultimate demonstration of the law of sowing and reaping is when Christ sowed perfect righteousness and reaped eternal life for you on the cross. Only those who trust his finished work, they're the ones who reap eternal life by faith. 
the Lord on the cross, he reaped the consequences for every Christian so that we could be united with Christ and reap the blessing of eternal life. So our good works or sowing in the field of the Spirit is not earning our salvation. It's just evidence that we are saved. And I want to say this. If you are a believer who sows in your flesh, then you're probably one of the most miserable people here on this planet. Think about that. You're perhaps more miserable than a hard-hearted sinner. Because as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you who's telling your conscience not to sow the seed in your flesh. You're sowing the seed in your flesh anyway, and you're hardening your heart, and it makes you miserable. Being a Christian is a terrible idea when you're just committed to sowing seeds in your flesh. And I say that tongue-in-cheekishly because at least you go to heaven. But it's a miserable state to be in. And it's something to repent of. David said, restore me to salvation? No. David said, restore me to the joy of my salvation. So how do you get your joy? What's required? Well, you have to be committed to crucify your flesh. You have to be committed to repent of your flesh daily, to die daily, take up your cross daily, and to walk by the Holy Spirit. And let me say this as well, just as we're wrapping up. Sow seeds into your friends. A great way to walk in the Spirit is, again, the spiritual life is a community life. It's investing, not just money, but time. Sow spiritual seeds in thought and in deed into your friends. Sow seeds, if you're a parent or a grandparent, into your children. Even children who act non-responsive to the seed sowing process, especially junior hires, who just sit there and stare at you and you're sowing seed and sowing seed. I, I'm serious. God bless junior high ministers. I mean, it's just, they, they just stare at you. But don't be deceived. They're being sown into. I've also seen this, and I'm sure you have as well. Parents stop parenting their adult kids, and that's a mistake. I went through it as an adult, young adult, uh, newly married person. I didn't give my parents the time of day for anything they told me. No, you don't understand. You don't know my world, my life. But they kept sowing. And it's something that you have to do. You sow seeds into people's lives, even if they seem or appear to be non-responsive. Because it really does matter, and it really will bring a harvest. I remember when... My wife and I moved, we were in a home in Little Rock, and we had we'd built it and, or had it built, and, and the lot next to us was uh, empty and vacant, so it was really nice, and you know, we had our lot and our house, and that lot was just vacant, and we didn't really anticipate the fact that they were going to build a house there, and then someone built a house there, and they built the house like right, right in our kitchen, no, right up to our kitchen, right there and so you're just looking out the window at this house and so we very christianly decided to plant a barrier wall um, between the home and we decided because it was the south we would we'd plant bamboo you don't understand 
Bamboo, unless you have a backhoe, once you've planted that, it's there for life and eternity till Jesus comes back. It, it's on one side of your fence, and then it crawls under the other side of the fence and grows up there. It's a forest, and, you know, what godly neighbors we became through that. But that's not my point. My point is bamboo roots are the kind of roots that we sow spiritually into each other's lives. Don't underestimate the seeds of the Holy Spirit in your own lives and in the lives of others that you invest it. Look at verses 9 and 10. Don't grow weary in doing good. This is that ministry for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Don't neglect each other within the church, within this ministry.